Thanks, Jason. We want to welcome a special guest this morning who I believe is here. I think Shepard Joyner is here. Shepard, could you stand up? He's back in the back. Um, we, many of us have been much in prayer for a little Shepard, and he is out of ICU and home and uh, with us this morning. We're very thankful for God, to God for his kindness in Shepard's life. This morning, I would like to seed uh, my introduction to this gentleman, if my clicker will work. Here we go. But I got my rental car in Dallas. You know, I had the GPS. Have you seen the GPS? Heard of the GPS? GPS, love the GPS. Tells you what to do. That's beautiful. It's so nice. Driving along. Turn left now. Turn right up ahead. Turn around and go the other way. I love the GPS. And when you make a wrong turn, do something bad, it's like, recomputing. Recomputing, not, you moron, no. You idiot, no. Recomputing. I love that. I want, but what we need is marriage GPS, guys. Marriage GPS. Wouldn't that be awesome? Just tell us what to do. Guys don't know. Say something about her hair. Hey, what's up with your hair? Recomputing. The GPS, though, that's fine. I-, I love the GPS. It's really cool. I used to have redneck GPS. Turn left at Walgreens. <laughs> you don't see a pit bull and a go-kart. <laughs> but just keep a-going. No, you went, oh, reek, reek, we're doing it again, doing it again. Uh, That's Tim Hawkins. Uh, He's all over YouTube if you want to hear more about GPS, but uh, in the interests of, uh, I think in the interest of marital harmony, I was given a GPS uh, recently um, because my wife usually has to navigate when I drive, and she has ceded that now to a GPS unit. When I first got it, I was on my way to Burnsville, North Carolina, to a retreat, and um, my GPS was new to me, um, and I I thought, this is a wonderful thing. I told it, I punched in the address where I needed to go, and it began to direct me to Burnsville. I got to the interstate out near Marion and got off, and it uh, took me uh, now, now about 10 o'clock at night on um, Route 80. I don't know if you've been on Route 80, um, about 10 o'clock at night. Route 80 looks like a spaghetti noodle after you twist it on your fork. Okay. I mean, it is the most twisty, windy, cutback road that I, I may have ever been on, at least at 10 o'clock at night. And that night, I'm winding around on that twisty, windy, noodly road, and I kept wondering, um, am I on the right road? Turns out I was, and I got there, and after the retreat, I ended up uh, coming back, and I turned my GPS on to take me home, and I thought, I'm going to be fascinated to see what this road looks like during the day. On the way back, it took me on Route 19 and Route 220, which in comparison looked like a spaghetti noodle before you cook it. And I'm thinking, why did my GPS take me one way at night and a different way during the day? And at that point, I learned that GPS actually have a kind of sense of humor 
uh, built in, kind of a twisted sense of humor. Uh, they'll get you there, but maybe w- with great angst. Um, but I was confident because I had a GPS and I knew it would get me there, and it did get me there. Uh, Tim Hawkins, I think, is right. Marriage GPS would be a great Father's Day gift. Um, today, what I, wanna, I want you to think in this frame of reference about the importance of GPS for your soul. Uh, the kind of GPS that would give you confidence when you ask the question, am I on the right road concerning your spiritual direction? See, Jesus uses the metaphor of a road in the portion of the Sermon on the Mount that we are submitting to today in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. And there he gives us critical, um, error-free guidance for discerning if, in fact, we are on the right road. So if you would like to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13, I'll pray for us. And we'll look at what Christ has to say about our direction. Father, we, uh, we do need direction. We are a wayward people. We are easily distracted and easily misled. And so I pray today for each and every one here that we would be able to discern, to self-assess whether we are in line with the teaching, the error-free, perfect teaching of our Lord Jesus on the important matters of uh, spiritual direction and spiritual fidelity. God, on these matters, we want no errors. And so we trust in Christ and we submit to his teaching now by our presence and by our attention. And we pray in his name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This honestly is one of the most sobering teachings of Jesus um, that I know of. The Sermon on the Mount begins with a series of blessings. It ends with a series of warnings, of which this is the first. It's a series, an ongoing series of opposing pairs that Jesus is teaching about. Where where he makes two things very clear, he does in this first teaching. He makes clear, first of all, there is a choice that has to be made about your direction spiritually. You do not naturally drift onto the right road. You must choose it with intentionality, Jesus says. It's small, it's narrow, it's difficult. Secondly, he he indicates there are two and only two choices. Jesus does not allow for a third, a middle way. He's saying there's a narrow way and there's a broad way. One leads to life, one leads to destruction. Two ways, two options, that's all in the mind and teaching of Jesus. And obviously, Jesus is intending that we would see a vivid contrast between these two roads. At every point of comparison, they're polar opposites. The gates are small and broad. The ways are narrow and, and wide. And the destinations are life and destruction. They are as opposite as we could think them to be. 
Now, the narrow gate, as we start dissecting Jesus' analogy, his story here, the narrow gate represents Jesus himself. He has used this kind of imagery with different language, but this kind of imagery of himself elsewhere in his teaching. In John 10, he says, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He'll come in and go out and find pasture. Jesus, in this, in this metaphor he's using, is the gate. He is the narrow gate. And to enter through the narrow gate is to enter through Christ himself. Now, the wide gate would be all other saviors, all other hopes, any other way of salvation, whether it's education or morality or Islam or Mormonism, any other hope than the Jesus of the Scriptures, the unique Son of God, is represented in that wide gate. Okay. Anything other than Jesus is part of this really wide gate. And in this simple story of two gates, Jesus slays forever the hope of salvation outside of faith in the biblical Jesus. He says there's a narrow way and there's a wide way. Only the narrow way was Christ himself leads to life. Jesus is radically exclusive in this teaching. All other gates, he says, all other ways, they lead to destruction. The narrow road that the narrow gate leads to, it's the way of following Christ. And the language here indicates that not only is it, an, is it exclusive, that few travel it, but it's hard. It's a way of affliction and suffering. The word that Jesus uses when he talks about the narrow way is actually very closely related to the words for tribulation. Or affliction. Um, you pick it up all throughout the New Testament. This is the expectation of Christ followers. In Acts 14, it says they preached the good news in that city and they won a large number of disciples and they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships, many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. This is the consistent teaching of followers of Jesus throughout the years. And at this point, uh, Jesus is parting company with the modern day idea that to follow Christ is to be made healthy and wealthy and have a trouble-free life. Jesus is teaching something very different. It is absolutely true that to follow Christ is to follow the one who lived the fullest, richest, and the best life that's ever been lived. But it is also to follow the one who was poor and who suffered unimaginably for no fault of his own. Peter says that we should not be surprised by our suffering in following Jesus. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Be prepared to suffer. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And as a result of the narrowness of the gate, 
and the road, the narrow, hard road that it leads to, Jesus says there are few on it. There are few that travel this way. Now, the broad way, by contrast, would be one that's largely without cost. It's without demand. It would, it's the natural path your feet would carry you. And it is widely populated. Many are on the wide way. And, of course, these two roads lead to polar opposite destinations. The small gate and the narrow hard way lead to life, to the full experience of the kingdom. John would write in 1 John 5, this is the testimony God has given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It all revolves around the Son. The wide gate and the broad way with so many on it leads to destruction. Again, uh, listen to Peter's language. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And there's, there's a day coming. There's a destination that road is going to lead to. Peter says it is a day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And the imagery, the vivid imagery of the New Testament is life shut out from the kingdom where you're not with the king. You don't know the king. Second Thessalonians says this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you. Because you believed our testimony to you, Paul says. The broad road to destruction, tragically, Jesus says, has many on it. Many are on their way to the destruction that Peter and Paul just described to us. Punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. What does that mean? When you drive through your neighborhood, what does that mean as you walk through your office, your workplace? What does that mean when you walk down a crowded hallway at school? Perhaps most importantly this morning, What does that mean for you? Which road are you on? It would be easy this morning to think that if you're here, if you're in church, that surely church is on the right road. Especially if you come regularly. That has to be the right road. Let me share... Some insights from um, commentator Haddon Robinson as he writes on this that might be helpful this morning. He says, some people are attracted to Christianity because they have a leaky faucet and they want God to fix it. 
Perhaps they struggle with a destructive habit and they would like to tap God's power to help them break it. Or or maybe they have broken relationships that they want God to mend. But they learn from the Sermon on the Mount that God is not a plumber. They learn that leaky faucets are minor league to him. God wants to tear out the plumbing and deal with the well itself. He wants to change what comes out of the faucet. But really, we want to settle for a minor repair, not a major renovation. He says, a friend of mine, bothered by blurred eyesight, went to her ophthalmologist to get a change of prescription for her glasses. He, del- he discovered a cancer behind her eye, a melanoma, and wouldn't even let her go home. He placed her in the hospital, removed the cancer, and treated her eye with radium. My friend wanted new glasses and ended up having radical surgery. He says, that's what Jesus does. His kind of righteousness isn't a prescription for glasses. He performs major surgery. We don't get his kind of righteousness with new glasses. We need major surgery. Jesus doesn't deal with leaky faucets. He deals with wells. And as Jesus delivered his sermon, he wasn't preaching for applause. He demanded a decision. He pictured two gates, two ways, two trees, two foundations. Travelers must choose their way. Here's their message and builders their foundation. Listen Listeners, he says, to Christ's message need to choose. Now, which of those two roads are you on? Is the road you're on marked by submission, radical submission to the demands of Jesus? Is it marked by intentionality and commitment and passion that enables you to persevere even in suffering and hardship? Now, when I emphasize this, I'm not describing a a miserable road of of no joy. The New Testament says that suffering and joy coexist on the narrow way, that this is, in fact, the most joyful road you could walk. But it is marked by hardship and sacrifice. Does the road you're on bear that mark does the de- do the demands of Jesus shape your life? Okay. Is it narrow and restrictive in that regard? Listen to the words of Jesus as he uses this imagery again in a different teaching in Luke's gospel. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort. Make every effort To enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you'll say, we we ate and drank with you and, and you taught in our streets. But he'll reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And then there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you, it ran off the screen, sorry about that. Essentially it says you are left out. You are excluded. You are cast out. Kept out. There's a sense of urgency to Jesus' words. Make every effort. And there seems to be an urgency of time, too. Jesus envisions a day when that gate, the narrow gate, is going to swing closed. So this morning, most important question 
in the world is the one, are you on the right road? Are you sure you're on the right road? Did you access the road you're on by radical, total faith in Christ alone? Okay. Is the road you are walking marked by discipline and commitment and intentionality and suffering as you follow Christ, following Christ on his road? If not, then you might be on the wrong road even though you're here in church this morning. Listen to Paul's wise advice. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? So examine yourself. Jesus calls us in this first brief story to self-assess whether we are on the right road or not. So what I'd like to do at this point in time is just lead you in prayer. Discerning prayer about the road you're on. Okay, would you bow with me before we go any farther? Father, as I, as I prayed earlier, we are so easily deceived. And this morning, Jesus made it very clear. There are two roads. There are two gates. There are two destinies. And God, I pray this morning that you would give each one of us wisdom to know whether or not our faith is fully and wholly and solely in Christ as our gateway to life that we will trust in what he has done on behalf of sinners like us on the cross and in his resurrection to allow us entrance to life. And so, God, I pray for discernment this morning for everyone here. Does the road they're walking bear the marks of the road Jesus described? A life that's hard at times, that demands something of them a life that's different, that few are on. And God, for those right now who are unsure, I pray you would extend the gift of faith that they might trust Christ and choose, not half-heartedly, not with great reservation, but wholeheartedly, without reservation, to follow your Son and walk His road. So Lord, extend the grace that we need this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Let me challenge you, if, if that's where you are, then I want to challenge you to go public with that this morning. And before you leave this room, you would talk to somebody either about the questions you have about which road you're on or that you are choosing this morning to trust in Christ and walk his way. You're going to follow Christ today. You're going to enter into a relationship of trust with Christ today. Talk to somebody about that before you leave. Our pastors will be down here at the close of the service, but you may have come with a really good friend that you can have that conversation with. Jesus urges us to assess ourselves and make sure we're on the narrow way. Now, in the verses that follow, that we're going to look at the rest of our time, he urges us to assess those who teach and lead us spiritually. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. 
Now, again, Jesus' view of spiritual truth is radically narrow. It is exclusive. He decidedly does not believe that all paths lead to the same destination. And as a result, he believes that there are those out there, spiritual leaders and teachers and pastors and professors and writers and bloggers who would lead you astray, who would deceive you. They are not what they appear to be. In the verses that follow, Jesus helps us discern in a world with lots of wide path options who is a teacher who can be trusted and who is a false teacher. So this is of the utmost importance because this is not easy. Uh, Again, Hedden Robinson writes, he says, Years ago, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in Amsterdam put some of their priceless originals on display next to fakes. And they asked the visitors to the gallery to pick the authentic one. See how many visitors could tell the false from the true. Of the 1,827 people who took part in the experiment, only seven were able to discern which of those were real and which of those were false. It is not easy. It's not easy in art. It's not easy in doctrine. Let me read a doctrinal statement to you, and you tell me if you're okay with this, all right? Listen closely. We believe Jesus suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he submitted to a cruel death on the cross of Calvary as a willing sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement for our sins. That offering is made efficacious as we exercise faith and trust in him, repent of our sins, are baptized by immersion as a symbol of our acceptance of his death, burial, and rise to newness of life, and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Does that work for you? Is that pretty good? Sounds pretty good to me. Um, That's from a Mormon scholar speaking at Harvard Divinity School in 2001. It ain't easy to sort this out. It is imperative that you sort this out. First Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, as he writes to his, his disciple Timothy, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there at Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. So the church is just hot out of the oven and Paul is having to send Timothy to ask men, command men, not to teach false doctrine any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, Paul says, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So, as it was Timothy's responsibility to the church that he shepherded in the first century, it's my responsibility to you, the church that I shepherd in this century, to identify false teaching. Not to be mean-spirited, not to defame a brother, but for your good, for the protection and care of your souls. 
So I am going to trot out some examples today of errant and false teaching. There's a chance I may step on your toes. You may have their books. You may love their shows. And much of what they, they teach may well be true, but some of it is dangerously in error. And I want you to be aware of that as we think through this together and as we obey Jesus' command together to watch out for false prophets, for false teachers, for those who are in error. Okay? Because Jesus goes on and he says, By their fruit you will recognize them, these false teachers. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. See, Jesus urges us to consider a prophet, a teacher, a pastor, an author, a leader's fruit. Let's start with the fruit of their teaching. Does it line up with the Word of God as revealed in the Bible? First test. Does it produce fruit in the lives of their hearers that's consistent with the life that we're called to live in the Bible? Okay. Um. A relevant question to ask today, do they deny the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity? Jesus, the Son, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, three in one. Do they deny that doctrine? Now, many of you have studied that very carefully if you're in our life change classes, and you're, you are well-schooled in this. Many of you are not. But there is, a, there is a Christian denomination that has a church plant in our community that denies the doctrine of the Trinity. It is the United Pentecostal Church. Many dear, sincere folk in that denomination, they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. It, this is popularized, and I mentioned their name because it's a little bit covert, by the Christian musicians Phillips, Craig, and Dean. I mention them, not because you have to worry about their music so much, but they are also pastors. If you begin to read their teaching that's available online and in their books, they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. You need to be wary of that teaching. You need to be ready. Another question you can ask, do they worship other gods? Or a different Jesus? Do they elevate other books on the same level or above the Bible? Again, listen to that address from uh, Robert Millett, that uh, Mormon scholar at uh, Harvard back in 2001. He says, he says, one could come away from a careful reading of the second half of the New Testament, somewhat confused on the matter of grace and works, finding those places where Paul seems almost to defy any notion of works as a means of salvation, but also those places where good works are clearly mentioned as imperative, and he cites scriptures there. 
It's to the Book of Mormon that we turn to receive the balanced perspective on the mercy and grace of an infinite Savior on the one hand and the labors and works of finite man on the other. And in so doing, he just exalted the Book of Mormon not only equal with Scripture, but above it. We interpret the Bible through the greater, later revelation of the Book of Mormon. Um, It doesn't just happen with those kinds of writings. It happens with stuff you can buy on the internet, on Amazon. The 1996 bestseller, Conversations with God, has sold over 2.5 million copies. The author, um, Neil Donald Walsh, says that one day he just started writing down his direct conversation with God. That should warn you of something right there. The God he speaks to is not Christian, not identified with any other major religion. He presents a God who satisfies the spiritual yearnings of our culture, he says. Here's one of those conversations. God says, I cannot tell you my truth until you stop telling me yours, Walsh. But my truth about God comes from you, God. Who said so? Walsh. Others. God. What others? Walsh. Leaders, ministers, rabbis, priests, books, the Bible for heaven's sakes. God. Those are not authoritative sources. So he's having a conversation with God where God tells him not to believe the Bible as an authoritative source. Instead, the authoritative source, according to God, is listen to your feelings, Luke. Listen to your highest thoughts. Listen to your experience. Okay? Whenever any one of these differ from what you've been told by your teachers or read in your books, forget the words. Go with the feelings, Luke. This is insanity. This is spiritual insanity. It leads you down a path of destruction, according to Jesus. Do they confess Jesus as Lord? Do they deny his incarnation, his coming to earth as a man? Do they deny his crucifixion or his resurrection? Islam denies his crucifixion, typically, based on this passage from the Quran. That they said, we killed Jesus Christ, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. But they killed him not, nor crucified him. But so it was made to appear to them. And those who differ therein are full of doubts, with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow. For of a surety they killed him not. Nay, Allah raised him up unto himself, and Allah is exalted in power. Wise. An explicit denial of a crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Do they deny that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ of God? Um, In 2004, the Reverend Sung Young Moon, with members of Congress, gathered in Washington's Dirksen office building. Moon wore uh, what appeared to be a white silk stole and a red velvet robe. And during the ceremony, they placed ornamental golden crowns upon his head and the head of his wife. And the New York Times summarizes Moon's speech after being crowned, saying, Emperors, kings, and presidents had declared to all heaven and earth that Reverend Sung Young Moon is none other than humanity's Savior, Messiah, returning Lord, and true parent. A little closer to home for us than Reverend Moon would be this uh, teaching, and I'll just play it for you. 
I'm delighted to present my latest book, In Defense of Israel. This book will expose the sins of the fathers and the vicious abuse of the Jewish people. In Defense of Israel will shape Christian theology. It scripturally proves that the Jewish people as a whole did not reject Jesus as Messiah. It will also prove that Jesus did not come to earth to be the Messiah. It will prove that there was a Calvary conspiracy between Rome, the high priest and Herod to execute Jesus as an insurrectionist too dangerous to live. Since Jesus refused by word and deed to claim to be the Messiah, how can the Jews be blamed for rejecting what was never offered? Read it in this shocking expose in defense of Israel. This latest book by Pastor John Hagee is destined to generate lively discussions among Christians the world over. It's available in most U.S. bookstores or call the number on the screen and order your copy today. Call now or visit our website. Ask for offer B139. Yeah, you, you bet it's going to gender lively discussion amongst Christians. Did, did you hear what he said? That Jesus did not claim to be the Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Messiah. It is exactly and wholly and fully what Jesus claimed to be. Um, you know, I, I don't even know what to say except, you know, First John, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He says such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. Now, those are not my words. Those are John's words. From the Word of God. Do they deny that Jesus is the Messiah? Do they deny the truth of this verse? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Except through me. This is from... Uh, well, this quote says, Jesus is a way, but not the only way to salvation. The presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church in England, the most reverend Catherine Jeffords Shorey, has told members of the Diocese of Quincy just this past April. In response to a question from the audience about her personal beliefs, the presiding bishop said that to insist Jesus is the only way to God is to limit God. She said that God was at work in the lives of other faiths. God is, at the very least, a mystery, Bishop Jeffords Shorey Jeffords' story said, God's intention is for a restored relationship with all humanity. My job is to proclaim the good news of Jesus, but I cannot deny God is at work in other ways. Now, as in all these cases, there's elements of truth mixed in with this monstrous uh, lie that to limit, to insist that Jesus is the only way to God is to limit God. To insist that Jesus is the only way to God is precisely what Jesus says in John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I do not know how he could have been clearer or, or more exclusive of other ways. And we have, we have presiding bishops in the Episcopal Church um, seeming to forget, forget that, I guess. Does it produce fruit in the lives of their hearers that lines up with the Bible? Here's an example. Does it encourage them to love money and want to be rich? Because the Bible does not teach that. The Bible 
forbids that. Paul in 1 Timothy 6 says, There are some who think that godliness is a means to financial gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. But we have food and clothing. We will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Does it produce fruit in the lives of their hearers that lines up with the Bible? And if it encourages a desire to be rich and a love for money, then that's a false teaching. It does not have fruit that's consistent with what the Bible teaches. And of course, Jesus has in mind the fruit of their lives. Do they love money? Do they live pure lives? Do they practice what they preach? If they ask for money for their ministries, are they generous? And are their ministries generous? Do they live lives that look like Christ, marked by humility and sacrifice? Do they love God? Um, One expert in the field of false religion says, false teachers invite people to come to the master's table because of what's on it, not because they love the master. So fruit check is really difficult. The thorn bushes Jesus is speaking of in this passage actually did have little grape-like berries that could be mistaken as, as grapes. But they're not. Fruit check is, is very, very difficult. So, um, I've got one other example. I'm going to go ahead and share it. Um, just because I know a number of you read his books and love his ministry, and I, I want to give you some pause. Um, it's about Joel Osteen, the pastor of the largest church in America. And I like Joel Osteen. I don't know how you could not like Joel Osteen. This is the nicest guy in the neighborhood. I, I, I personally like him. I don't know him. We've never had lunch. I, every time I've watched him interviewed, I, I come away liking him. Okay. Um, And there is some fantastic fruit in his life. He declines a salary from his church because he has other means of income. It does not need to. He loves his people. I think genuinely loves his church. Um, But his teaching um, is pretty broad. Okay? Listen. In his interview with Larry King, which this comes from, along with uh, whitehorseinn.org, their site, Joel Osteen said that he is not sure what happens to people who reject Christ Larry King followed up with the question about Jews, Muslims, and other non-Christians. They're wrong, aren't they? Osteen replied, well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. Ask about Muslims, for instance. I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I believe what the Bible teaches. Here's what the Bible teaches, and from Christian faith, this is what I believe. But I just don't think that only God, but I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God, and I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. I know for me and what the Bible teaches, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. Osteen does not even use the word sin or sinners, as he himself observed. In its place, apparently, is something like mistake. No longer is it falling short of the glory of God. Sin is falling short of my best life now. It's hard to lead a, is it hard to lead a Christian life, asked Larry King. And Joel Osteen replied, I don't think it's that hard. Now, what did Jesus just teach us about the narrow way? 
To me, it's fun. We have joy and happiness. I'm not trying to follow a set of rules and stuff. I'm just living my life. Osteen said that perhaps talk of God's judgment was for a time, a generation ago, but I don't have it in my heart to condemn people. I'm there to encourage them. I see myself more as a coach, as a motivator, to help them experience the life God has for us. So, uh, you need to be very careful about Joel Osteen's teaching ministry. Again, he's a humble, delightful, friendly person. That does not mean that's not sufficient fruit for you to submit to his teaching authoritatively. So be wary of the teaching of someone who does not proclaim with clarity what their doctrinal statement reveals. He does believe, according to his church's doctrinal statement, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. But that is very rarely proclaimed, very cautiously proclaimed. He's very... Fuzzy on sin and God's judgment. So the first test is the fruit of their teaching. Does it match the word of God? Beyond that, there's the test of the fruit of their lives. And Jesus believes that this test of fruit is an infallible test. He says a good tree can't bear good fruit and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. It may take time to watch and listen and interact and pray, but Jesus says that genuine faith produces genuine fruit. So be careful about the ministries that you sit under, whether reading or listening or sitting under a pastor's teaching. You should be evaluating my teaching based on the same criterion that Jesus is giving us. Does my teaching line up with the scriptures? Does my life line up with the life that Christ calls us to follow? And to do that, You must know the word. You must know sound doctrine. Paul says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Watch your life and doctrine closely. You need to be able to discern truth from error. That matters. You need to know the word. You need to know what kind of fruit God is expecting in the lives of those who speak for him. The fruit of the Spirit, of the living God, for instance. And I cannot commend to you high enough, outside of your personal study of the Scriptures, the life change classes that we offer here on Sunday morning. There is a basic introductory class that is on the doctrines, the great doctrines of the scriptures. If you haven't taken that class, you should. Because Jesus tells us, Jesus tells us, watch out for false prophets. And this class will teach you the the great doctrines of the scriptures in a way that equips you to do that. In addition, next fall, there's a new class that's being offered um, on cults, and world religions that will take Christian doctrine and compare it and contrast it with those of other faiths. Um, many of you should sign up. Two of our best teachers are teaching that. Noah Joyner and Greg Mathias are teaching those cla- that class this fall. Um, there's a guy named um, 
Roger Olson, he's a theologian, he wrote a book called In the Story of Christian Theology, and he says, a popular misconception, perhaps a Christian urban legend, is that the United States Secret Service never shows bank tellers counterfeit money when teaching them to identify it. Maybe you've heard this. That they only teach bank tellers to identify real money by showing them real money. That way they'll recognize a fake when they see it. The agents who do the training, so the legend goes, show bank tellers only examples of genuine money so that when the phony money appears before them, they'll know it by its difference from the real thing. The story's supposed to make the point that Christian ought to study truth and never heresy. He said, the first time I heard the tale as a sermon illustration, I intuited its falseness. On checking with the Treasury Department's Minneapolis Secret Service agent in charge, in charge of training bank tellers to identify counterfeit money, my suspicion was confirmed. He laughed at the story and wondered aloud who would start it and who would believe it. He says, at my request, he sent me a letter confirming that the Secret Service does show examples of counterfeit money to bank tellers. Then he says, I believe it's important and valuable for Christians to know not only theological correctness, orthodoxy, but also the ideas of those judged as heretics within the church's story. One reason is it's almost impossible to appreciate the meaning of orthodoxy without understanding the heresies that forced its development. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, your son has spoken to us very sobering words. They are not the happiest words for me to teach on, but they are so, so important. And I so pray that you would guard my words so that I might speak your truth, nothing more, nothing less than that which you have spoken. And God, I I pray that same thing for the brothers whose names I mentioned this morning, for uh, dear Joel Osteen and for uh, Reverend Hagee. Lord, that you would show mercy to them, that they would be humble and receive teaching and correction of the serious errors that they've committed in their teaching according to your word. God, have mercy on them and bless their churches through their teaching as it conforms fully to your word. God, may Northwake always be protected from grievous error. As we teach in our small groups and in our life change classes and as we teach to our children, give us grace that we might teach your word accurately. Lord, there are some here this morning who are getting a sense that they've bought into false teaching. I pray you'd be kind to them and lead them to repentance from that and to a clear, full, firm understanding of the truth. Lord, and some of us have been led by teachers down that broad road that will lead us to destruction. And again, I pray for your grace. Grace to repent and turn to Jesus, the narrow gate, the one who leads us on the narrow road to life itself. And we pray all these things in his great name. Amen. If you'll stand.